Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So that's one thought I had. And I love, I really like Sally McFaig. And I really like her ideas about what it means to have an embodied theology um, because it pertains to justice. I also really think that it makes us call into into question some of these sort of like uh, white male archetypal figures who have been teachers of religion and why they don't talk about justice. You know, Um, they don't have to. You know what I mean? Well, I know that you are a very devoted fan of Brian Stevenson. I am. And I have thought about, you know, I try to give titles to our conversations a couple of weeks ahead of time so that we can be thinking about it. And I read the Beatitude that is up for this Sunday. And I thought that the, the title that really fit is the title of his book yeah. and the movie about his work, Just Mercy. Yeah. And the more I think about that title, the more I realize that it has uh, multifaceted meanings. We just are seeking just mercy. Yeah. And a mercy that is just. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a wonderful title. It's so funny when you said that out loud just now. <laughs> it's when it just kind of washed over me, right? Like the double entendre. Because I think when I read it, I read just mercy. A mercy that is that is contains justice. But I also like that simple plea. Just mercy. That's all we're asking for. So I will, I want to point out something about the Beatitudes, mm-hmm. and that is I want you to notice how reflexive they are. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom. Right. The meek inherit the earth. Those who show mercy receive exactly what they show. Mercy. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think Eugene Peterson translates it the way he does about you will be cared for to the degree that you care. Mm -hmm. And I don't know exactly because I haven't written much, if anything, about this Sunday. But I think that one of the directions that I want to go in addition to um, talking more about what justice is and what mercy is, is talking about what it means really to take care of ourselves. Um, I, I used to um, speak to a wide variety of um, corporations and other business groups uh, in another lifetime. And one of the things that I talked about was how our beliefs shape our reality. And I pointed out that we have beliefs that we say that we cherish, that we do not honor. 
And the example that I gave is that I asked people in the audience, um, those of you who believe based on what you have read, what you have seen in the media, what some healthcare professional has said to you, that a plan of good nutrition and exercise is beneficial. And would you hold up your hand? And I'd say everybody, almost everybody in the audience would hold up your hand. And I said, well, now I want to ask you another question, but I'm not going to ask you to hold up your hand. How many of you actually practice good nutrition and have a good exercise program? And I know that if I had asked people to hold up their hands, not as many hands would go up. So we have beliefs that we don't honor. I, I think this gets organized religion in trouble coming and going. You know, we mm-hmm. um, we ask people to stand and state a creed that nobody believes, but we encourage them to state it. And then on the other hand, we ask people, for example, when they become members of the United Methodist Church, do you take a vow to oppose evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever form they appear? And everybody says, uh-huh, but we don't do it. So so we must then talk about how even the United Methodist Church has upheld some form of oppression. Right. And especially in the LGBTQIA movement and in those who have been excluded. And going back to the, going back to the very thing that led up to the need to create the United Methodist Church because it was divided mm-hmm. uh, at the time of the so-called Civil War. And that unification of the Methodist Church did not happen until the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you still have a denomination uh, in, the, in this country, probably the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, which is identified by their territorial name. Southern Baptist. Baptist. Yeah. Right. I'm listening to a book called White Too Long. It's about um, white supremacy in the Southern church. And it's interesting. I'm, I maybe am about a third to halfway through. And it actually brings up this affiliation of the United Methodist Church with the, um, you know, segregation and uh, Jim Crow and how it played an integral part in upholding that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, not and not unlike many, many uh, churches in the South and all over the land. But it was an interesting story specific to the UMC. Um, and, you know, I mean, you're bringing up another thing, too, that you, we sit, we have beliefs that we don't fulfill. We also have beliefs that we don't question. Right. And, and that's what that's what kept certain things in place for so long that um, that it kept white supremacy in place for so long. It had, it kept slavery in place for so long. These beliefs that like, well, that's just the way things are. And um, you know, people will say things, well, it's the law. Well, it's the rule, but what happens when the law is not just, I've taught my kids to question unjust rules for sure, which means that sometimes fires back <laughs> because the other night, my son told me that my consequences were not just. I was like, maybe your behavior is not just. <laughs> you know, I, I jokingly refer when I speak to um, 
I jokingly refer to my research department. Mm -hmm. And um, that research department is my beautiful bride, Dr. Siri yeah. Beeman. She is forever handing me things to read. She reads the New York Times uh, every day wow. and on Sundays. And she's the clerk, you need to read this. And so she gave me an article to read from last Sunday's New York Times about evangelical Christians in the United States being, um, I don't know what the right word is. I would say victims, but I'm not sure that you can call yourself a victim if you knowingly enter something. But how the evangelical Christian movement in this country is increasingly embracing QAnon theories. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's just frightening to me that, that there, first of all, it's frightening that the evangelical Christianity has become so identified with the Trump administration, with the Republican agenda. Um, and they, in the process of doing that, have absolutely disavowed the values that I came to think that evangelical Christians stood for. As, as I said in our talk on Sunday, um, we want our children to tell the truth, to play fair, not to be bullies, not to lie, uh, to keep their commitments. Um, all of those things which uh, the leadership of our present administration does not honor in the yeah. least. There's definitely a certain amount of um, cognitive dissonance playing out and a certain amount of denial, right? It's, um, again, beliefs that we think we have that remain unquestioned or beliefs that we sort of blindly follow without adherence to them. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear about what I just said. I think that it's time for people in places of religious leadership and uh, religious education to call out uh, things that are unjust mm -hmm. and wrong, even if it sounds like taking a political stance. And that's one of the reasons I read that long quote by Joan Chittister last Sunday. Um, we, we ought to be able to say at some point, and I'm taking this title from this word from a documentary that both of us have, have now seen uh our our present political leadership is unfit to lead mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah it's i don't care whether you're a democrat or republican you know my, my my entire family of origin tends to vote republican not all the time but that is their tendency uh never before have i thought it's so important that we vote not party line but that we actually vote with our values with our actual values and if our value is for human decency kindness and justice there's no way we can vote for the incumbent there's no way and uh it's interesting i hope it's okay that i out my father on this but he not a lifelong straight up republican um, voter but for the most part has been a republican voter for presidential elections um is like creating 10-point plans about why people should shift mm -hmm. and and emailing it to his friends who he thinks will vote for Trump. And I, you know, I think, I think because human decency prevails, right? Like 
if if we if a leader i had a friend on a zoom call in a class that i'm in say the other day like he and he he echoed something that you said not long ago that where is our charismatic leader where is our one leader our sort of mandela or mlk or something like that and he pointed to how important he thinks leadership is to the psyche of a nation not that it sort of has um a bearing on the outcome of all movement all of the time but that when it when it systematically disparages and dismembers a people from one another then all things are called into question the mere value of life is called into question he stated that something like uh, sorry 400,000 american soldiers died in the 6 years of world war 2 200,000 have died of COVID in America over the last six months. And it's like, eh, we're doing great. We're doing great with this thing. That's the message we're mm -hmm. getting. And so we're getting real laissez-faire about the value of those we call our brothers and sisters, regardless of where they are. So I, I, I asked an acquaintance of mine recently why he was supporting the present administration going to vote for Trump in November, and he said, well, I support our police. And I said, well, the implication is that anybody who doesn't vote for Trump doesn't, and that's not true. Mm -hmm. I support our police, and as a matter of fact, I think that if we are wanting to be good citizens, one of the things that we need to do is to ask the police how we can help them do a better job. Um, I think nobody wants to be attacked and maligned. Um, but there are implications that uh, if you're not a Trump supporter, then you're this radical, wall-haired, liberal, socialist, commie pinky, and that's just not true. That those those kind of divisions are not true. Yeah, I, I want to say that I watched this documentary called Unfit. Mm -hmm. And you've seen it. I watched you've seen it also. It. Yeah. I and, and I think that that everybody ought to see it, mm -hmm. not for the purpose of trying to be persuaded into or out of some political position, but simply to be aware of how the right and the left have been complicit in intensifying each other's positions. Mm -hmm. And if we are going ever to get to the remarkable place that Jim Wallace talks about, or that Hafiz talks about in his poetry, where we don't go right, where we don't go left, but we go deep, where we are willing to go to a field beyond the questions, and I'll meet you there, that poem of Hafiz. Mm -hmm. If we're ever going to get there, we have got to listen to each other and stop maligning and denigrating the other's position. Uh, I keep going back again and again to Ruby Sales' question. Where do you hurt? Yeah. Yeah. Let's deal with that. Fundamental question. The poem that you referred to, I think it's worth reading here. It's a Rumi poem. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Yes, I misstated. It's not Hafiz. It's Rumi. Yeah, thank you. Read it again. Are you, you quote, it, quote it again. 
Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Mm. So we suffer in this country. We suffer a lot. I mean, you know, I talk to people as a, as a counselor every, every day, and I know that there are people who are, um, they're angry, they um, have a sense of um, being defeated and a sense of despair, a, a sense of fear and anger. And um, what I think we we suffer from, which is what I hope we can talk about in this this Sunday about this beatitude is that we don't suffer in this country from a lack of goods. No. Many people do. I, I acknowledge that. What we suffer from is a lack of goodness. We, we suffer from this idea, I think I posed the question on Sunday, is can we let go of scarcity? We have enough right. goods. We have enough resources. We suffer from being able to see the interconnection of the sharing of those resources, that it actually benefits the whole. You, ha you have to wonder, don't you, why it is that with a population that, if you adjust the United States population to other countries, we have the worst coronavirus deaths of almost any country in the world. Why is that? We're, we're technologically supposed to be the best? terms of health care, we're not, but we think we are. In terms of education of children, we're not. In terms of incarceration, we imprison more people than any other country on the planet. Yep. And yet we have this self-image of being so righteous, you know? Yeah. There's, I think I'm going to, I may get this number slightly wrong, but there's something like 75,000 people in jail who have not even been convicted of a crime. It's a, it's a holding tank. It's a, it's, it's, it's a place where you get stuck if you are too poor to have legal representation or too poor to pay bail. And it's such an abysmal system in that way. It's not to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't have yet a conclusion about what I think about jails themselves. I do think they need to be reformed. I absolutely think they need to be restorative and not uh, punitive oriented. You know, I mean, there's that saying that people go to jail to learn to become better criminals. And um, there's, there may be some truth in that, but what it does is it perpetuates this kind of lack of just mercy. You know, Brian Stevenson's whole prison, um, principle is everyone is better than the worst thing they've done. And I was talking to Josh about this the other night, like, um, gosh, do we actually believe that? You know, it's a beautiful principle. Mm -hmm. And there's people I've sat with in different ways um, that have done some terrible things and I have seen goodness in them. There are people that I look at from afar that have done terrible things and it's hard to see goodness mm -hmm. all the time. Um, so that principle of his is a really tough starting place. Mm -hmm. Can we really believe that about one another? Mm -hmm. So as Thich Nhat Hanh's poem says, right? Call me by my true names. I have been the sea pirate who raped. I have been the little girl who got raped. 
I, I think that a great deal of this is dependent upon getting to know people. Mm-hmm. I talked to a man this morning whose 26-year-old son has been apprehended and convicted of a um, sex crime, let's say. And I, I was listening to this father who is in such anguish about his son who is not an evil person, but certainly had impulses that got the better of him. And I thought while I was listening to this man about what you said Sunday, quoting Brian Stevens, none of us is as bad as the worst thing we have ever done. Mm -hmm. And we've all done things that... um, We don't want to talk about on Sundays. We we, we don't want to talk about. You know, um, I... I uh, tell you this story, she won't mind my telling this, I don't think, because it was a great insight. Uh, A number of years ago, I mean, 30 years ago, I was doing an all-day workshop at a psychology conference in San Antonio. And I had gone over the day before to be there uh, for, to, to, to get ready to do this workshop that was going to last all day the next day. And uh, my beautiful bride decided that she was going to come over the next day. And she wouldn't come uh, at the beginning of the workshop. She was just going to come and observe, not be part of it. And um, she has a tendency to run late to appointments. And so she, she went to the airport to catch her flight and this is long before 9-11 so you could you know go in rush down to the gate and get up there and just as she got to the gate the plane was doing a pushback yeah and she had a temper tantrum because they wouldn't of course turn the plane around and yell at her on the on the flight so she missed her flight had to come later in the day. I think there was another flight later that day. And so when we got together uh, that night, we went out to dinner. And uh, at that time, San Antonio was one of my favorite places in the world to be. You go down the river walk and whatever. We were talking about today and she told me about her temper tantrum at the airport. And she said it occurred to her in the middle of it that people in mental institutions, many of them, just got caught at the wrong time. She said, because if somebody had seen me (laughs) having that timber tantrum, they might have wanted to lock me up. Oh, sure. So we've all done crazy things. We've all done hurtful things to other people. Um, It's how we deal with that that I think is a real issue. Yeah. I mean, grace is part of grace, I think, is recognizing that we're all just like skating that razor's edge. We could take a step off in either direction and be in the abyss of some kind of irrational behavior, right? Um, We could be in the abyss of addiction. We could be in the abyss of, I mean, even just like homeschooling my kids, I can feel during the day pressure building up in my body because 
you know, they throw pencils down for me, things they would never do for their teachers. I don't want to do it. I don't want to, you know, and I can just, I feel the pressure. I feel the tension. I also want to throw my pencil down <laughs> and have a fit, you know, but it's, it is that we are all on that razor's edge of losing our shit, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's what do, how do we recompose? How do we find the space for a breath that says, be here now? Right. So I postulated this theory a long time ago that we are able to love and care for another person only to the degree that we are able to love and care for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we are able to allow somebody to love and care for us only to the degree that we love and care for ourselves. So we're back to this beatitude about if you show care, you will experience being cared for. Mm -hmm. And I believe that there is a fundamental law of the universe at work in that. Law of reciprocity. Yeah. The law of reciprocity, the law that says everything has an equal and opposite reaction. I think the Buddhists call it karma. Right. There's a lot of ways to define it. Um, and this book that I'm so loving by Sally McFaig, you know, she, um, she echoes some of what um, Teilhard de Chardin says in saying we've lost this cosmic sense. And, and it gets me to what you're saying. I, I think some of our behaviors that are not careful and therefore not caring for ourselves are about this sort of homelessness, this lack of belonging if you will. And what is it that rips apart our senses of belonging? Many things. It can be poverty. It can be soul poverty. It can be um, not being well attached to a parent or a caregiver that sends us on a trajectory of anxious behaviors, where we're just trying to get needs met in ways that are not good for anyone. Um, but she, she really talks about the embodiment, the necessity for embodiment in order to restore our relationship, not just to this cosmic sense, but to one another, to all beings, to all people. It's a justice issue. It's a care issue. It's a, the, the, the more you show care, the more you will get. And the more we will realize that we belong, the more we will experience belonging on a bodily level. And I think it goes back to so much of what you've reiterated over the years is that this three-tiered universe keeps us in some ways out of our body. Because if everything sort of mystical and um, transcendent is out there mm -hmm. and not experienced right here, we're never going to feel at home, you know? So I want to play with this for a minute. So in my psychological training, and you're trained psychologically too, we're, we're trained to know what are the ingredients of a healthy personality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you were to build on trying to define that by saying what are the ingredients of a healthy physical body, we know that a healthy physical body has to have the proper nutrition, proper sleep, 
by the way, that that's a huge issue in American yeah. culture. Yeah. Sleep is a huge issue. Absolutely. Um, proper exercise and uh, what I'm going to call worthy commitments. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say those three things are required. Okay. So what in the spiritual religious realm would we suggest for somebody that would constitute proper nutrition and proper exercise and worthy commitments, those three things? Mm. Well, it's not the communion wafers. That's not proper nutrition. That's for sure. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> well, the communion wine may be a good thing <laughs> if it were alcoholic, you know. That's right. Um, but the proper exercise, Bill, mm -hmm. please tell me you know the answer to this question. I do question. know the answer to that question. It's having a vigorous spiritual practice. Right? That's, our, that's, our, that's how we exercise that muscle. And, and in nutrition, this is metaphor, of course, but it's imbibing God in all that is, imbibing spirit in all that is, not as transcendent other but as imminent presence, as imminent body. So to follow up on that, I just will share with you this part of my spiritual practice. I think spiritual practice consists of three things, as you and I have talked about before, mm -hmm. and one of it has to do with headspace. And I started reading this book today, which is a, a mm. new book for me, Open the Age of Despair, uh, by Albert Nolan. Albert Nolan is no longer with us, I don't believe. Albert Nolan... Uh, wrote a book called Jesus Before Christianity. And what's really interesting in Albert Nolan is he's what's called a contextual theologian. He did his theology in South Africa during apartheid. So he's the James Cone of, of South Africa, yeah. right? By the way, today's <laughs> the 50th anniversary of James Cone's printing his Black Power book. Did not know that, yeah. the theory yeah. of Black, black 50 liberation. years ago, I yeah. sat in class at him at Union. So mm. It, it, mm. Albert Nolan in this book, Hope of the Age of Despair, gave me a, a absolutely new understanding, a new definition uh, of what we have referred to as the poor and the marginalized. I think you will love this. He calls them mm. those who are sinned against. Mm. Mm. Because if we embrace the values of compassion and justice and equanimity and joy and love, uh, then we withhold those things from any part of the population. We have sinned against those people, and those people become those who are sinned against. I hadn't heard that phrase before. I like it. Yeah, I love it. There's, um, there, there's something about the idea of separateness then, that sin is essentially believing in separateness. Mm -hmm. And I've said this to you before, but the word sin in Spanish is without, to be without, to be without a sense of the other as thou, to be without a sense of belonging. I think mm -hmm. that is the sin, right? And that is... You know, we, we've learned through studying um, nonviolent communication that most violence is a result of unmet needs on some level. Mm -hmm. And 
it goes back to what we began with. We have this fear of scarcity. There is enough for all needs to get met. I want to say most of the time, if not all of the time, of course, in relationship, there's compromise, there's back and forth. Well, I need this right now. Well, I need this right now. And in, when we have a sense of belonging to one another, when we have that I thou, we can arrive at what one might call compromise easier because there's trust that eventually our needs will get met, that there's enough there for both people to be sustained in the relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So health, health, health depends on those three things. I'm gonna say for right now, I might elaborate on those or expand on those. Um, vigorous spiritual practice constitutes exercise. Um, nutrition, what we put in our minds, mm -hmm. what we think about, mm -hmm. what we expose mm -hmm. ourselves to, uh, um, mm -hmm. that matters a great deal. I think that's one of the things that makes it very difficult for some of us right now to feel like that we're getting adequate and accurate information uh, in the political realm because what I hear from both right and left pretty much seem to be screams um yeah. and distortions and accusations mm -hmm. and rock throwing and i i i don't want that i don't want to be in the middle of that um mm -hmm. so getting accurate information about what's really going on is very difficult to do i just sort of got like that biblical image of moses who parts the red sea and says stop right <laughs> like i just want to say stop you know and i can't remember how the rest of the story plays out but it you know just some kind of being able to turn in silence and look at one another you cannot make eye contact with someone and not feel something you cannot right, right. You know, in babies, when, when the mother or the caregiver makes eye contact with the baby, um, oxytocin courses through our body, the bonding hormone, right? And, and we feel that sense of togetherness. And that happens with our lovers. That happens with our friends. That happens when we just gaze upon another. I, you guys, you and Sherry have us do that in your Being right. One seminar to turn and look and see and hug. <laughs> it's the longest hug I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It concerns me that I'm hearing people on both the left and the right predicting mm -hmm. that regardless of the outcome of the election in November, there's going to be gunfire in the streets and conflict and we're better than that. We are, and we also get really stuck in our animal brain. You know, I mean, our lizard brain is like loud when we are scared. Yeah. And, and here we have people, as you say, on both sides feeling scared. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, there's some beauty in that, this idea that that is a common feeling, this fear. How will we move forward? And if we just rest in that, that there is a commonality in the feeling, we might be able to understand one another. 
there's um before we got on i i opened up a page of quotes uh by brian stevenson from the book just mercy i thought well this might come up <laughs> and there's one in particular that i love and it says there is a strength a power even in understanding brokenness because embracing our brokenness creates a need and desire for mercy and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. When you experience mercy, you learn things that are hard to learn otherwise. You see things you can't otherwise see. You hear things you can't otherwise hear. You begin to recognize the humanity that resides in each of us. I think that's what this beatitude is about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book and a great movie. I recommend it. I do too. I want to encourage people to um, get Eugene Peterson's version of the New Testament and read the entire Sermon on the Mount. Maybe start reading parts of it every day as part of your vigorous spiritual practice. Because mm -hmm. we're going to go through all the way to uh, through these three chapters, and there are some really wonderful parables and stories told in these chapters, and the Beatitudes mm -hmm. are just a preamble to these things. I also, Holly, before we go today, I do have something I want to read, but yeah. I want to I, I want to let people know that a month from now. Dr. Jackie Lewis is going to be here. She's going to be doing a seminar webinar with us on Saturday, October 17th. I think that's the right date. Uh, and it's going yeah. to be an anti-racism webinar. Don't let that scare you or turn you off. Uh, she is a beautiful person in every way. Lots of energy, lots of smarts, mm -hmm. and uh, it will be fun. Um, a number of people in Ordinary Life journeyed to the Roar Conference where we saw her a couple of years ago. And then some of the women in our class went to a special retreat where she was a presenter uh, a, a number of months after that, and they really liked her a lot. So yeah. I want to encourage people to go to the Ordinary Life website. Um, if you just go to the landing page, Holly has put this dramatic picture of Jackie Lewis. <laughs> there i think i said it reminded me of joseph in the technicolor dream coat yeah. <laughs> and i just loved it yeah so and yeah. um yeah. register registration is open we already have people who are registering i spoke to tim today about that uh you have to register twice uh for saturday yes. once and for sunday once you can register for either for both they there's no charge for this but you have to register or you don't get a link to invite you to the yeah. webinar. Tim yeah. said that we will also probably live stream that Sunday in addition to okay. it being a webinar. So I don't know how that's going to work out. I'm not the technical. Well, I, I'm going to guess because we want to make sure there's a recording of it so that we can put it on the website yeah, after the we'll fact. Do that, I'm sure. okay. I, have, I have this fear that now that people know that we are going to, we did record Michael Morewood. They think, ah, I don't have to be there in person. I just watch it later. And then you end up not watching it at all. Wow. Well, 
all we can say is we're so much better in person than we are the week after. <laughs> Just kidding. So, uh, um, before we go, have you got anything else? Yeah. Because I want to read something to close with. I do want to say one thing, you know, it, it, this idea that anti-racism might, might draw up anxiety or fear. I think like, let us lean into the idea that it's growing the muscle of compassion. It's growing the muscle of I vow. It's growing. It's, it's spiritual exercise. Yeah, it is. So you acknowledged on Sunday that we have had this major loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg who died and yeah. we have had all these deaths by COVID and we've had these fires on the West Coast. And there is this man uh, who is a retired Methodist minister. His name is Steve Garnas Holmes who writes these prayer poems that I get on a regular basis. And uh, I want to I want to close by reading one. That's okay. The one that came today. Please. For the empty seat, we hold silence. Love, have mercy. For the two hundred thousand, we weep. Love, have mercy. For the homes incinerated, we mourn. Love, have mercy. For the rule of law, we lament. Love, have mercy. For kindness and nonviolence, we pray. Love, have mercy. For courage to stand, to speak, to act, we pray. Love, have mercy. For faith in one another, that we still hold the future in our hands, we pray. Love, have mercy. For justice that dismantles oppression, hope that overcomes despair, for faith that overpowers dread, for love that defeats fear, for joy that will not be taken from us, we pray. Love, have mercy. In the face of all that oppresses, give us trust in grace unseen. Give us hearts to rise, to serve, Yes, even to sing for life, for life. Mm. Isn't it beautiful? Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's really beautiful. So I will see you Sunday. See you Sunday. Okay. Thanks, Bill. Mm -hmm.